whose introductions are not scripted because its host is effortlessly witty. On this year podcast, I talk about the numerous ways in which the law screws us over. And today I'm coming live from my parents' house. So instead of the sounds of fridges and city, general city sounds, instead of screaming children and the sounds of ventures beeping their little horns from the distance. Beautiful, beautiful. So today's episode is particularly interesting because it is about law enforcers, aka the police, aka oink oink. Sorry. <laughs> so um I find the relationship between the law and police so interesting, right? Because the two are just mutually what is constitutive? They keep recreating each other. The law creates the police, the police create criminals, then the criminals are in the the jail or a lot of scot free, and the cycle continues to con- perpetuate itself, which is a very, very interesting thing to me. So, as you guys can probably tell, I have a lot of thoughts about policing as a whole, and I will be getting into them. But before that, I want you to take note of the fact that this episode is not about the West, right? I know it exists, but today it's not part of the conversation. Today, we are going to be talking about policing in South Africa, which is a settler colonialist state. And I feel like that is a very important thing to take note of. So just in case you don't know what settler colonialism is, right? I think we all know what colonialism is. It's the process where you steal resources from countries and peoples and... Uh, decide that you've discovered something that was already there. Then settler colonialism is where you discover something that was already there and steal resources, but you also settle there, which is why it's called settler colonialism. You take up that place and you have settled there. Simply put. So I feel like that is a very, very interesting context, and I feel, I'm going to get into that because it ends up being this thing where like um, the police exist to protect the settlers, Hello, it is me, Wealth Editing. I feel like I kind of just left this concept hanging and it's very interesting and it's very important when you talk about police in South Africa. So, um, yes, the police ex- exist to protect the settlers and subjugate the indigenous peoples. So you'll see ex- like how it works out as I continue to explain um, what happens uh, in the podcast, in this episode, yeah. But... You kind of see that they exist there to perpetuate white supremacist ideals continuously to protect the property and interests of white people. And in the future, white people along with like black elites and Indian elite and all of those people who have money. So that's just a side note. You will see it right now. I am here from the future. I knows what happens. I knows. I actually made a mistake that with that weight, but I'm just going to run with it now. But anyways, bye. Wait, not bye. Continue. Thank you. So yes, I'll be talking about poli- the history of the police, their function throughout the centuries, and what they are like in the present, and ultimately, why they suck. Because 1994 is the apartheid ended, there tends to be a dichotomy between the apartheid era and the post-apartheid era. And I'll be following this trend because otherwise I will have to show that not much has fundamentally changed in the years before and after 1994, which makes everything super convoluted and more results in me having an existential crisis that ultimately results in me talking to myself about the benefits of not having cars, like, at all. And that's not what you came here for. 
what you did come here for is police. So, side note, uh, if you want to see some cool pictures and diagrams and whatnot, check out the transcript of this episode on my blog. It shall be linked in the description. I didn't reference correctly, but I did reference. So, there. I referenced all the time because I take plagiarism seriously. Before I start talking about pre-1984 policing, I want to tell you that I have not been able to ascertain which of my resources are peer-reviewed. So... Uh, some are, some probably aren't, but I didn't use Wikipedia as a source of information, so at least we will know, without a shadow of a doubt, that DJ Maporisa is not 15 years old. I hope you guys get the reference. If you didn't, I am sorry, it wasn't meant for you. But if you do, laugh with me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but according to SA Mirror, the Burger Watch, also known as the Burger Wardmasters of Vague Miesters, was the main law enforcement organization in the 15th century. The Free Burgers, the people who would end up creating and being absorbed into the Burger Watch, were the early settlers at the Cape of Good Hope and they ended up forming this organization. In an article entitled Inventory of Archives of the Secretary of the Burger Military Council, 1718-1795, J.H. Mini mentions the fact that, quote, the Burger Watch began to develop shortly after the creation of the Free Burgers. In 1659, it was already decided to organize the Burgers into a company of riflemen to halt attacks from redacted racial slur for Khoi and Sad people and bandits. The Cape Burgers were converted into a watch in 1686 to maintain order in the Cape. These people would become the forerunners for modern-day police. Their function was to aid the garrison protecting the Cape against attacks from outside as well as an unlawful activities of the burgers and by the way it's not burgers it's like but i don't want to say that it's tiring to do that thing but anyways along with halting alleged attacks from indigenous south african groups i would hardly call retaliating against settler colonialist an attack no matter the circumstances but anyway and quote maintaining order in the cape these people guarded hospitals now, the article did not explain why they guarded hospitals, but I'm guessing that this probably had something to do with preventing the indigenous people from accessing these hospitals, or maybe to control the movement of medicine and patients in and out of hospitals, I have no idea. But anyway, this article provides specific dates for the inception and demise of this particular watch. So, the burger watch would continue to exist for quite some time, but this specific burger watch began in 1686 and ended 10 years later. But these, these, these people would be appointed as world masters in 1790. So in 1975, no, there was definitely a mistake. In 1875, the British took over the Burger Watch and it is generally accepted that this is when the Burger Watch formally disintegrated because it stopped being mentioned in documents and whatnot. From there, the British would help create a fractured law enforcement system that would end up remaining a thing in South Africa for years to come. In 1825, the British organized the Cape Constabulary, which became the Cape Town Police Force in 1840. In 1854, a police force was established in Durban, which would become the Durban Borough Borough Police, and in 1935, the Durban City Police. Act 3 of 1855 established the Frontier Armed and Mounted Police Force in the Eastern Cape, restyled as the Cape Mounted Riflemen in 1878. In 1873, the Thubi tribe under Chief Langalivala, I just want to have a little joke here, there's a bus called Langalivala that passes through my township, who lived among the foothills of the Dragonsberg under the shadow of the mighty Champagne Castle and Kathleen Peak, came into conflict with the Natal government. That was how I'm quoting right now, so... Just in case you think my freezing is a bit strange. But anyways, 
go back to the script after the rebellion the government instituted the natal mounted police a mixed force of whites and non-whites the wording makes me feel icky too but i do not want to say black people because these armed force might have consisted of indian people too i have no idea when the indians were brought to south africa i didn't research that and i won't because i have researched enough okay yeah but these people were known to the zulu people as nongai yeah so each brew republic or colony has its own organization that enforced the law before the Second Anglo-Brew War. But when the war broke out, the Transvaal and Orange Free State police forces were called to active, to active service in the Brood Army, while the Cape Mounted Riflemen and Mounted Police and the Nadal, Nadal, and the Nadal Mounted Police were called to support the British. As you guys can probably tell, the South African police have had a dual function to protect white institutions and to fight in wars for a very long time. The dual military and communal law enforcement nature of the South African police would continue even when South Africa became a union in 1910. The separate law enforcement organization remained separate after the unionization of South Africa. However, in 1911, these organizations became centralized. Quote, by the end of 1911, the police force was being restructured and divided into two forces, namely the South African police SAP, not SAPs, SAP. And the South African mounted riflemen, Samr, sorry, S A M R, Samr. So the first group would function normally under the Police Act as police officers, and in war they would be constricted according to the Defence Act, while the S A M R would be a regular military force with police duties during times of peace. So as you can see here, the fact that the South African police and the South African mounted riflemen could do each other's work, depending on the global state of affairs, is an important thing to keep in mind, right? People who are meant to arrest others for stealing oranges also fought wars against literal fascists, fascists, fascists. I don't know why I always struggle to pronounce that word. But what could go wrong? A lot. A lot. And these problems will become clear as I continue talking. In the meantime, the decision to make the police and military interchangeable depending on the global state of affairs became law in 1930 when Section 2 of the Police Act provided inter alia. Inter alia means amongst other things. They shall be established as from the day to be fixed by the Governor General by the proclamation in the Gazette, not being earlier than the 31st day of January 1913, a police force entitled the South African police and composed of a such persons as may be enrolled as members of the force in terms of this act or on or subsequent to the date. So I remember that one of my teachers, you know, my African teacher, it's always the African teachers, I don't know why. She told me that her boyfriend, right, after they finished high school, they had to do, uh, I think, police service or military service. I don't know which one it is. So I found that very interesting. I don't remember the specifics because, like, it's always said in passing, but just wanted to say that. So it seems as if all white men had to participate in this. Um, at least during apartheid, I don't know about before that. Maybe in the later years, I don't know which time, guys. Look, I don't know how old that woman is, so yeah. So, in the years to come, the South African police would be frequently called upon to aid the military to overpower opposition to the government. South Africa would come to be known as a police state during this time. So I think, I think it's kind of clear what it means by police state, right? Uh, it just means that the police kind of regulates what's going on in the state. And the South African police clearly demonstrated a colonial legacy and just like police forces over the world was focused on repression rather than social empowerment. Again, important. 
Importantly, the South African government relied on the police to maintain its colonial, colonial and apartheid policies. The South African police underwent increasing militarization with the development of the universal rights, the deployment of the police in what was then Rhodesia, while it was in the midst of civil unrest, before, both before and after the independence, and the use of armored vehicles to quell township unrest. Police work was defined primarily as the policing of race relations and policing became a political activity. So I also want to think, just before I forget this, this thought, I want to just say it right now. I want you to think, has the police stopped being a, has policing stopped being a political activity right now in South Africa when you really think about it? Keep that in mind. I hope I'll remember to mention this again when it's my time to actually talk about this. But right now, I want to list a couple of legislations that kind of help the police function the way they did during apartheid. So the Natives Act... Um, number 67 of 1952 gave police the power to control migration to and from the Bantustans. Bantustans were where uh, black people were forced to live, basically. Uh, and the Public Safety Act of 1953 gave the Commissioner of the South African Police uh, the power to detain and suppress political opposition, particularly those from the ANC. The Terrorism Act number 83 of 1962 authorized indefinite detention without trial on the authority of a policeman of or above the rank of lieutenant colonel. A person detained according to this law could not be visited by anyone other than the magistrates. The Transganian uh, Police Act number 5 of 1950, 1967 provided for a national policing service and the various powers vested in it. The Police Act number 16 of 1979 granted the police further powers with regards to search and seizure. So, the police were incriminated in a plethora of crimes, both heinous and just super strange, right? Some of which were allowed by legislation and others which were completely illegal. But in both cases, they managed to leave without having faced any serious repercussions or any repercussions at all, sometimes. For example, we have the case of S versus Boshoff. In this case, five policemen broke into a white woman's house in Pretoria. There were two men, one of whom was her boyfriend and was presumed to have been Indian because he had dark skin, and the other presumably a friend, in her house. The two had stayed over because they were drunk and could not drive home. The judge set aside the conviction and sentence in respect of each of the policemen. I just want to quote some of the things that the judge said because, wow, smooth brain vibes. In my opinion, the information which the police received and their own observation of the woman's boyfriend was such that they had reasonable grounds for believing that offense was likely to be committed during the night in question. Accordingly, they were justified in their belief that a warrant would have been issued to them in terms of Section 25.1bi of the Act, entitling them to enter the age com- the complaints, uh, the complainant's premises to take steps for the maintenance of law and order or the prevention of a, of the offence. The appellants were thus entitled to enter the premise of the complainant at any reasonable time. Sorry, I keep saying I appellants. The appellants are the police, and the complainant is the white woman. Uh, in this case, the appellants entered the complainant's uh, premises at 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning. That would not ordinarily be a reasonable time, but in the circumstances of this case, and having regard to the information we received, the nature of the offence which they believed was being or was about to be committed, and the purpose for which they wished to effect the entry, it may be that the time was reasonable. It is unnecessary, however, to make any finding to, on this point. The magistrate found that whilst all of the accused had acted unlawfully in having invaded the privacy of the complainant and having forcefully entered her apartment and of having taken photographs of her in a nude or semi-nude state, they did not necessarily have mens rea. Definition of mens rea is the intention or knowledge of wrongdoing that constitute part of a crime as opposed to the action or conduct of the accused. 
So it basically means that like they didn't intend to do anything wrong by doing by taking photographs of her naked. Anyway, more particularly, the magistrate found that the accused believed on reasonable grounds that they were participating lawfully in a police operation for the purpose of preventing a crime vis an act of immorality vis just is is like that is yeah. This could have, um, just my, my assertion now, this could have meant sexual relations between an Indian man and the white woman, or the three people in the house doing the tingalings together, you know. So, uh, back to the judge's words, they accordingly had no intention of injuring the dignity or invading the privacy of the complainant. Yeah, so the police were incriminated in more serious crimes, many of which remained unreported or which the court simply dismissed. This was because during apartheid, the constitution did not have supremacy, and even so, the constitution probably was was trash. So, rather, the government had complete control over the goings on of the country. What happened during this time is that the government had the power to elect judges who would then purport their white supremacist ideals. They had already institutionalized. They had already institutionalized racism and could easily create new legislation to protect the police if it meant maintaining the oppression of black people. Up until this point, I have spoken solely about white police organizations who explicitly work for the interests of white people. However, the South African police did not operate in isolation. There were 10 homeland police forces which operated within their own jurisdiction and with their own legislation. But don't get confused or anything, these people also worked for the interests of white people as most police forces and so it's like no as all i want to see all just let's you know it's implicit what i'm saying but yeah as most police forces and settler colonial states do what's important to take note of is that there were 11 separate police forces that existed during apartheid i've a link for the pictures of the flags of each homeland and badges of each police force in the trans- transcript so check that out the homeland police forces could be divided into one of two categories. Those that were declared independent in the mid-70s to early 1880s and those that were self-governing but had no independent rights. This thing of independence was important in some ways but inconsequential in others because the independent states were not viewed as such by the international community. The independent states were the Transkei, Puputatswana, Venda and Siskai and the self-governing territories were Gazangulu, Kangwane, Pandebele, Kwazulu, Liboa, and Kwakwa. Just as I note, in present-day South Africa, you can clearly see how the state of affairs influenced these different regions, like, still to this day. Um, but in general, all former homelands tend to suffer from underfunding, underinvestment, and general negligence on a provincial and state level, particularly the former self-governing states. These places were allocated to black people, specifically because the apartheid government knew that the land in these places were poor and they made sure that they would not be able to become fully independent as they lacked economic basis, had huge ramifications for black people still living in these areas today. It's important that you remember that this is not so because of anything other than calculated systemic decisions and a particularly gross brand of governance both then and now. One day I will talk about all of this, but today I'm still talking about the police, even though for a moment I just had a brief tangent but yeah some homeland police forces had more autonomy than others quote 
uh, Homeland Police Forces had been created during the 1970s and 1980s, with the core members being drafted from the South African police. These members were either black members of the South African police who were identified on the basis of their ethnicity, skill, and perceived loyalty to the apartheid model, or more senior officers who were seconded to the homeland on the basis of lucrative fixed-term contracts. I knew the Santa would come. I just knew it. But anyways... Despite nominal political independence, the ethnic homeland forces were subject to significant control by the South African police, which continued to control access to financial and technical resources. By the early 1990s, all the police in South Africa had acquired a reputation for brutality, corruption, and ineptitude. Police organizations were militarized, hierarchical, and ill-equipped to deal with, quote, ordinary crime. Street-level policing was conducted in heavy-handed style, with bias against black citizens, obviously, and little respect for rights or due process. Criminal investigations were largely reliant on confessions extracted under duress, and harsh security, re- security legislation provided or tolerated various forms of coercion and torture. Their policing techniques were outmoded, partly as a result of the campaign for international isolation of the apartheid government. However, despite their lack of skill in dealing with crime, the South African police were notoriously effective against their political opponents. I want you guys to give an example. I want to give you guys an example of a really silly case of corruption because I, I feel like it got a bit dark. And I want to bring some light on the foyer, even though like obviously it's, it's still going to be dark. But in in the case of S versus Tebe and another, a bunch of police stole a dead carcass. Yeah, I wish there was more to the story, but they just found a dead animal and took it. And the court decided that, quote, a crime was committed and the carcass most likely went the way in which it would have gone if the magistrate had first been approached for a disposal order. Look, it isn't that deep, but wow. <laughs> what I do want to point out, even in this also silly case, is the fact that the police were allowed to do whatever they wanted, however they wanted, with little to no repercussions. This do not see a situation was supported by the courts and legislation. Obviously, there were a plethora of cases where the police committed much, much more violent crimes. I was not able to find any records of police being arrested for these crimes, even though their crimes were well documented, right? And I was looking through, I have, a, I have access to a bunch of law reports because my university um, allows for me to do that. And I searched police. I searched 19, from 1940, 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990. And I cannot find the cases about, like, the more, I guess, more serious crimes. It was mostly about... Uh, procedure evidence so that irritated me because i know there were more serious crimes i don't know why it's so hard to find them but anyway right but in many cases instead of taking police to court for using excessive brutality the apartheid government merely found ways to reduce media coverage of their crimes or crack down even more on the communities being terrorized by the police through the use of legislation such as the terrorism act (laughs) <laughs> let me close my window maybe it'll make things better i hope it's better guys okay let me just stop recording and see what it sounds like yo this is what you this is what i get for recording the day i'm supposed to upload but it's not my fault guys i swear yeah so i so i just did a brief test with the rain still raining outside and it doesn't sound that bad so i'm just gonna continue so i was talking about the how the the, the the government used the terrorism act to crack down even more on communities right and also the reduced media coverage so two excellent examples of this are the soweto uprising and the trojan horse 
right? I don't want to talk about the Soweto uprising because I feel like most of us know about it, right? I Like, we have a holiday for it. And I feel like it's such an important and pivotal moment of our, our history. And, like, obviously, we must continue talking about it. We must continue sharing stories about it. We must continue celebrating it. I don't know about the way we're celebrating it right now. But, you know, story for another day. But today I will instead talk about the Trojan horse because it is a lesser known one, I guess. So I'm going to just share an audio clip about this event. Okay, so I want to share the audio right now. I was going to like do it in a very slick and very professional way. But now I must resort to ratchet tactics because my recording things aren't working and I can't, I can't get the audio from YouTube on my illegal music downloading pirated site so let's just listen on my laptop yeah, i'm sorry about when cameraman chris everson and soundman nick delacaza arrived in thornton road in a mixed race suburb outside cape town there was no more violence than usual but it would escalate into an event that many said did more damage to the south african regime's international image than all the other coverage combined there was a bunch of kids standing on a street corner probably about 30 strong clearly there had been some incidents already there were signs that vehicles had been stoned, there was glass on the street. And not wanting to be part of the scene, we set ourselves well back from it. Just up the road but out of sight, CBS cameraman Fim de Foss and sound recordist Anton van der Merwe, no strangers to police harassment, arrived on the scene. It wasn't violent at that point when I arrived there, but I could see the rocks in their hands. I wasn't that far away from them. I thought, uh-oh, there comes trouble. Chris Everson had the same gut feeling. It was a flatbed vehicle. Um, with boxes on the back. And I filmed the truck as it went down the road away from me towards the group of kids on the corner. Then the truck turned around and came back. As it approached the kids, three or four stones hit the windscreen. And as they did so, there were several policemen in the back of the truck hiding in boxes and they popped up. What is particularly vile about this particular incident is that it was so unexpected, right? The police hid and waited for the kids in the neighborhood to hit the seemingly harmless vehicle with stones and proceeded to open fire. Whereas the police usually patrolled the neighborhoods of black and colored people in Caspers, these menacing vehicles used to transport military troops in order to intimidate them. In this case, they were looking, they were in a normal looking orange truck. So with a Casper, not Casper your vest, guys, like a Casper, like a, you know, like, but with these Caspers, Caspers, you knew that danger was coming. But with this orange strike, you had no idea. So, that it was just, like, it, this is, this feels even more menacing because it was hidden. It was, and it wasn't the only case that happened. It wasn't, like, an uncommon event. It just, it was filmed. So, there's so many other times when the police hid in this Trojan horse and killed people and they just weren't reported. What is important is that whenever police came to um, townships, to uh, colored neighborhoods, uh, to black neighborhoods, they always came with an intention to kill. But in this instance, they did so without even giving the people something like a warning that somebody may die today. So now we're talking about post-1994 police. So the South African police and all the homeland and self-governing governing territory police agency amalgamated to form the South African Police Services, SAPS, in 1994. 
The South African Police Service's responsibilities and duties are regulated by the Constitution of South Africa and the South African Police Service Act. The SAPS is a huge organization whose function is to, quote, protect and serve the community at all times. Keep a pin on that. It is markedly less militant and much less prone to random bouts of police brutality, but its members are still not innocent. They're still militant and they still brutalize people, so they're not innocent. In many ways, the the SAPS has adopted many of the tactics that were prevalent in their predecessors. They still make use of excessive force, they still over-police black people, they still struggle to handle less serious offenses, albeit for much different reasons than the apartheid police, and they're still trash. The SAPS's um, psychiness is manifold. They are ineffective, some of them participate in crimes or help facilitate them, particularly in townships and CBD. And as I have just mentioned, they can also be quite brutal. Before I elaborate on these points, I do want to point out the fact that their Their inefficacy could be attested to the fact that they are not treated well enough by the state. Quote, the members are often exposed to severe situations of trauma and appalling working conditions, such as lack of basic necessities, such as toilet paper, vehicles, or offices. The organization is divided into national, provincial, and area components, with many units and stations operating within these divisions. One of the ramifications of such a large organization and the structuring of the four is that issues of jurisdiction, command, and coordination and control are constantly in question. Policing is particularly difficult because the members of the South African police services work in shifts. This results in a logistical and managerial nightmare. So you, you, there's a case where like a manager never sees specific employees. So you see there's like a disconnect there. So because of the cumbersome nature and magnitude of the organizational structure of the SAPs, role clarity and jurisdiction are often muddled. As I said, you don't even know who your boss is. How do you function? Do you understand? So what I find really interesting is that SAPS's role in thwarting protests. I want to focus on that uh, to point out their not goodness, right? They deploy brutal tactics which are almost identical to those we have come to associate with apartheid. And both, I can point to service delivery protests which tend to end with a handful of people dying at the heads of the police simply because they want water. We can also see this in protests pertaining to fair wages. An example that all of us are probably aware of is the Marikana massacre. In that massacre, 34 miners were killed by the... You're cold? Eh, twang. <laughs> 34 miners were killed by the SAPs, 78 seriously injured, and 250 of the miners were arrested. This event culminated after an intense week-long protest in which the miners were demanding a wage increase at the Lonmin uh, Platinum Mine in a wildcat strike. A wildcat strike or unofficial industrial strike is a strike action undertaken by ununionized On a point of correction, it is not ununionized workers, it is unionized workers. I don't know what it is with me and assuming that anything that begins with a UN is automatically un, but yes, it is unionized. Thank you all. Workers without the union's uh, leadership or authorization, support or approval. In an ensuing report on this event, the key political figures who were accused of having a hand in the event leading to the massacre, including Cyril Ramaphosa, who at the time of the massacre was a non-executive director at Lomlin, former police minister Nakim Tetwa, former mineral resource minister Susan Shabangu, and the national police, commis- pol- police, police commissioner Ria Pienga. Piecha. Why did I? Why did I struggle? <laughs> okay. But they, these these people were absolved, right? 
So on the 29th of March 2012, ESA reported that the court cases are yet to be concluded. Even though the police officers and mine workers were charged with murder, there have been repeated delays in bringing them to justice. News reporting sites claim that the mine workers' families have yet to receive compensation because the courts have kept on delay delaying the prosecutions. The issue of police brutality in the subs came to the fore during the pandemic, as with most things on this planet. We heard so many stories on the news of the police brutalizing people, particularly people with disabilities and foreign African nationals. The South African National Defense Force was not one to be left behind. Its members also killed a lot of people during the lockdown period. Sometimes the SAPS is not involved in more gaudy displays of brutality. Sometimes their brutality is meticulous and well thought out. Which brings me to the curious case of Rosemary Ndlovu. Rosemary Ndlovu is the reason why I decided to talk about this actually because I have I, I, I was like just vaguely thinking about her court case and just it just boggled my mind whenever I thought about it because wow guys <laughs> wow so uh, i couldn't find the actual court order in any of the law reports that i have access to probably because um they the 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 they have probably not been made available to the public so i relied on news reporting sites for information so but anyways i will explain what took place just in case you don't know what it is about rosemary nomiandrovu is a 46 year old former cop from tembiza she strangled her sister obri to death in order to get a 700,000 insurance payout. Uh, so this one she directly killed, right? But it was found that she orchestrated the killings of her next five victims. She did not directly commit the murders. Her second victim in this case was Aubrey's son, Brilliant, who was killed by him. Yingwana Morris Mbasa, her boyfriend, was killed after that point and she received 400... <laughs> she received 416,000 357 rand. Uh, she then ordered hitmen to murder her cousin, witness Madhaka Homu, her niece Zana Lemota, and another relative, Mayena Mashav. Mayena Mashav. Ndofu received 131,000 and 119,840 rand insurance payout for witness and Zanele, respectively. In the judgment, she was convicted on six counts of murder murder and on four counts of defrauding clientele limited one life insurance old mutual and asupo she was found guilty asupo for your friends asupo for your family sorry she was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder for trying to kill her sister noma sonto as well as seven counts of assignment to commit murder and the attempted murder of her mother maria mushwana as well as defeating the ends of justice by tempering with the scene of the crime where obi had died the manner in which Rosemary was eventually caught is as follows, quote, Nomiya wanted Kunene to kill her sister, Noma Sontondlov, the one who she attempted to murder, and like the count, I just mentioned it. <laughs> so, um, he said, Ndlovu persisted that she was in heavy debt, and Noma Sonto wanted to expose her for alleged role in the selling of confiscated guns to criminals. No, Ndlovu wanted Noma Sonto to be killed and later benefit financially from her death. Jabula told her that he was not a killer, but would link her up with Lucky Wear and Rizmkize, also known as Ntsebe. Ndlovu undertook to pay small portions and would settle the balance once the insurance companies had paid her. Udana said they were not going to do it because they saw the plan as a cash cow. Ndlovu was upset because the killing did not happen. 
she came up with with a different strategy that Norma Santo would be lured to Kempton Park, where her drink would be spiked and she would later be strangled. Monama said. Gunana later informed the police, who set up a trap for Ndovu, and she was arrested in 2018. So that that's it was like a a, a a hit gone wrong basically, and she was finally exposed for that, and then she was eventually found found guilty. Judge Ramuru. Judge Ramurumo Monama sentenced Dovu to life in prison for each of the six murder counts, an additional five years for defeating the ends of justice, and ten years on each of the four counts of fraud, ten years imprisonment for each of the incitement, uh, each count of incitement to commit murder, and ten years for the attempted murder of her mother. Ndovu, a person who committed crimes and used her position as a policewoman to shield herself from punishment, is not an exception. She has even committed crimes beyond the ambit of the case at hand. As the person from the court has just said that she also sold confiscated guns to criminals, which is obviously a crime, right? But there are a plethora of police who have committed the exact same crimes as her and those that are way worse. The difference between her and other criminal cops criminal crops the difference between her and other criminal cops is the fact that she was caught and punished in my township for example i recently found out that there are a bunch of police involved in an underground child prostitution ring that was like genuinely one of the most awful things i have ever i've heard of in a really really long time and the worst part is like how do you report it like, how do you report it now when it's them who are creating it, right? Like, I've, I've also heard of boys who have managed to escape jail time for having raped girls because their fathers are policemen. I literally once heard a person say that they do not care if they are caught committing murder because they know that their father will bail them out. I have even heard a policeman say that when a person calls to report a crime, let's say there's an open fire, like shooting of some sort, they will wait an hour before coming to the scene of the crime. The justification for this is that they do not want to get caught in the crossfires, which is ironic since they are supposed to protect and serve communities at all times. I try not to add anecdotal evidence to the research episodes, but I kind of feel like I will be giving you guys half an episode if I don't. So um, from this point forward, it's going to be just non-research to maybe like speaking. So growing up where I did, right, I'm, I genuinely am not going to sit here and pretend as if I grew up in the most dangerous township in this country or even the most dangerous part of my own township. Obviously, in saying this, and I'm not saying that there's anything like outside of, again, systemic decisions that make it so that um, townships and CBDs are in quotation marks more violent than like suburbs, like it's not because of anything that is different in townships, the people in townships. It's just because of the way that they structured like society during apartheid and which the new government has done nothing to change. So, you know, the reason why we have such a higher crime rates in these areas is simply because, like, again, underinvested, underfunded, under any, everything that is good. So, again, don't blame the people blame the structures but i am i've been acutely aware of these things throughout my life right and i learned to speak of and have the same attitude towards police as i do towards criminals the only difference between a criminal and the police is that the criminal never promised to protect me right alternatively when it comes to the police i just don't respect them and it's obviously super depressing it just goes to show that like what is the function of these people if they can't even do their job right personally i do not think that the police should exist 
especially in their present form. As many much more well-read people than I have said, the police do not exist to prevent individual crime. They do not exist to remove all the, in quotation marks, bad people from society. They are there to protect the property and wealth of the rich. They help perpetuate neoliberalist ideals. Just think about it. Why is a person getting arrested for stealing food? Why is a person getting arrested for stealing food? It's not because of the actual crime of stealing the food. It's because of the profits that the capitalist has lost as a result of the theft. They help reproduce violence in society because their function comes into play after the crime has been committed. They do not prevent the crime from happening. A person goes to the police after they have been raped. The police do not prevent rape from happening as a whole, which is the actual problem. The police do not help rehabilitate children who grew up in abusive households so that they do not grow up to become violent adults. They instead help get these individuals in jail. They are more likely to be incarcerated for more serious crimes than they were than the ones that they were convicted for. This is a very common occurrence in our prison. So people go to jail jail for petty theft. Right? So you go to jail because you stole food, right? And then you remain in jail for life because you got you got involved in a jail. <laughs> You got involved in a gang in jail and you commit a murder in jail. Then you are there for life, right? I don't want to talk about the prison system today, but that is like a topic for another. There's so many topics for another day because there's just so much wrong with the law <laughs> and law enforcement. <laughs> Lastly, the fact that the SAPS is so ineffective in solving crime means that there is a perpetual gap in society. Let's sit here and think of hypotheticals. Let's say hypothetically the police actually prevented crime. Then, since our police don't prevent crime, like I've told you, they come an hour after the people who have shot up areas and killed people, who is going to be doing the jobs? Huh? Who is preventing crime then? The answer is no one. So the gap ends up being filled up by vigilante groups, which is why we have these white Afrikaner groups who are enforcing the law that is brutalizing black people um, in these places where alleged farm murders are being committed. So I once saw this other uh, former Survivor South Africa winner has this vigilante group in the Eastern Cape where he like, he like he, he deploys these types like if you go on his instagram page he like a person is suspicious of be committing a crime simply because they're black so it ends up becoming this racialized thing and it's, it's really it ends up becoming a huge problem with that gap now that's not being filled up by the police very few cases of rape in south africa are actually brought before the police and a grossly low percentage of the people accused of rape actually go to prison right there's this principle that people go by in criminal law, um, which I've learned about in jurisprudence, which is like they'd rather have a thousand guilty people walking free than an innocent people person being taken to jail, which is, I guess, fair. Yeah. But that just goes ahead and shows you how ineffective our criminal justice system is. Right. If we have to let people who are guilty of committing crimes roam free uh, simply because we don't want one innocent person to end up in jail. And I understand that okay, it's a good thing. Then, in if we like, if we take this approach into account, it's a good thing that not a lot of uh rape cases end up going in a guilty judge, like guilty verdict, because it means that if a person was falsely accused of rape, then they're not going to end up in jail. But at the same time, it should really make us question how our legal system functions, right? If we have to intentionally think of 
uh, people roaming free simply because the state did not prove that that person is guilty, right? Like, you understand what I'm saying? I hope I hope I'm making sense, and I understand that like it's not a it's a very controversial um, opinion to have as a law student and as one day a lawyer. That why are we why are we okay with this being a reality? So yeah. Time to pull out some research. So in an RAFSSA report, the following finding, findings on attrition. Attrition is the filtering process by which cases drop out of the criminal justice system in the in our criminal justice system were made, right? So 390... Your meds! <laughs> okay, but 3,952 cases were included in the study and of these, 57% resulted in an arrest being made. 65% were referred for prosecution, 344 were accepted by prosecutors, and these were enrolled for trial. 18.5 trials started in 18.5 cases, but only 8.6 cases were finalized with a guilty of with a verdict of guilty of a sexual offense. We started with 3,952 people reporting rape, but only 340 of the people who were accused of rape, end up being declared guilty of committing rape. 81.5% of these cases never make it to trial. This is incredibly alarming, especially when we think about the fact that we are the rape capital of the world. Obviously, there are a bunch of factors that make it so that victims or survivors of rape decide not to report uh, the rape or give up before having entered the trial phase. There are societal factors, the fact that they are not believed or they are blamed for their own rape, but there's also a huge problem in both the police and our judiciary. Reporting rape can be a very hostile experience. I don't speak from experience, but I know that women and girls are sometimes treated very horribly by the police. And then we have the actual trial phase, where these people's names are smeared through the mud, they are continuously re-traumatized, continuously abused and berated and made, feel, made to feel as though they are the bad guy and not the person who raped them. And there's obviously the issue of the male victims of rape. We don't, I like, I feel like people don't think about that enough as well. They, these people get taunted, they're told that they should have enjoyed it, and all these proponents of toxic, hypersexual masculinity demonize men for not wanting sex, and this results in men underreporting rape. I personally believe that the police cannot be reformed. Today, you heard of their origins, you've heard about what they've been like for years. How can an organization that went from attacking indigenous South Africans for wanting to protect their own land to a standby military force to an unchecked torture machine and now a gross combination of all of these factors with a dash of inefficacy be reformed? How can that happen? An institution that is over 300 years old cannot be so easily reformed. And I hope that you understand that I'm not trying to say um, that the individual police are bad. Right? I know that individuals can be good. Kind police exist. I know that. But I don't think policing can ever be anything other than ruthless towards black people and the poor. But more especially, is but more especially the intersection of the two. Hello, it is editing maybe like once more. So I remember that in my talking I meant I asked the question if the police still have a political function in the present day. And the simple answer is Yes, they do. So, when we think about uh, how they find, like, act when we see protests from 
um, different political parties. So let's see how, let's think about how they react to the EFF's protests, for example. So we can think simply with it, sim- we can think simply about um, how maybe when the EFF is protesting and sometimes they're trying to destroy property. Yes, I guess, yes, they're protecting the property. Whose property? The property of the rich, which is again another thing that is like I've reiterated throughout the podcast episode. But also, it's a thing to sometimes the protests aren't particularly violent and yet the police are there. Uh, and sometimes the mere presence of the police can end up uh, resulting in like violence ensuing or it functions there to make it seem as if the people protesting are inherently violent. So what that does is it implicitly creates a narrative for the people protesting and the party that they are representing when you really think about it. On the flip side, if we look at protests that have been staged by uh, white people. So you remember that protest of Zuma must fall. Zuma must fall down. Those kind of protests which are usually backed by the DA, which as we now know is just a predominantly white party, which is very clearly functioning for the interests of white people and the rich. I mean, I have mentioned this in the previous episode about, I think I mentioned it, I don't know, but like, they came to my township, right? We were functioning very well with service delivery in my particular part of the township, so right? not the rest of us, but my specific ward. And then when the we we got our, our trash was being collected on time, we never had real issues with like water. And once the DA was elected, then suddenly the trash stayed. We didn't get our rubbish picked up for weeks on end, which is obviously a sharp shift from having everything be taken every single. Um, not every day, every a specific day, every single week at a specific time. So that was a very serious shift. And we saw a lot of, you know, you see those little water things at the front of the house. They kept, like, breaking and then the water would spill down the road. So just clean water being wasted. So that was the thing that I want to take note of. So, you, I've, like, you see how they react to the protest of white people backed up by the DA. You see how they react when is the EFF protesting uh, or members of the EFF protesting for certain things that have to do usually with black people and the interest of black people, particularly poor black people. And then now, let's look at how people, how they react to people who are protesting against service delivery issues, which is usually the result of negligence from the ANC, both on a national, provincial and municipal level, which is... I mean, like, in that way, they're thwarting the interests of these people. They're trying to, like, squash... Uh, their efforts right i know yes destroying property yeah 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 i understand but it is something worth noting so in each of these cases they have an inherent political uh, function because they act in different ways depending on the political party against whom people are protesting or for whom they are protesting i hope that makes sense Yes, so it is again me editing, and in my initial uh, version of the pod of the episode, as well as the transcript of this episode, which is on my blog, I don't really come up. I don't really mention. I really hope you guys can't hear my mother speaking. Let me check. I'm going to pause and see if she's audible. She is. This podcast is going to be coming live in two two thousand one hundred. Thank you. Okay, so she's quiet. So we're going to just seize the moment. Okay, in the initial original version of this episode i do not come up with solutions i just ended with hey look 
the police suck bye bye <laughs> and that's also how it ends on my blog blog blog, blog post but I decided that okay, I I can't just come here with problems and not come up with solutions because I I hate it when that when people do that, so I don't want to do that as as well. So here are the solutions that I have. The way I see it, crime agree a uh, crime occurs in like two ways, right? It's because of um it's because of poverty and it's because of greed and okay not three there's also a third point it's because of poverty poverty greed and also addiction. So, with poverty, it usually is things like not having uh, money to buy food, for example. So, you steal uh, cell phones, you steal other electronics, you steal food, so shoplifting, because you don't have enough food. Uh, and also, you steal these things because you want money for your addiction, to, to fund for drugs and such. So, if we can get rid of those things then we have gotten rid of one type of criminality right so here's how i say we kind of end those kind of crimes in order to end crimes that are fueled by hunger it's quite simple we find a way to stop making sure that people are not hungry and this will happen both on a municipal level and also on a communal level so the community as a whole you have we have to do we have to kind of do that thing where we collaborate as human beings so the world between us kind of have to become insignificant we have to actually interact with each other so we interact with each other and then we create a community garden and then this will obviously be a thing where like the government provides the seeds they provide our initially was thinking about cattle but i don't want it to be doing all those methane emissions so i think it'll be better to focus on um uh, chickens for protein and then we can also think about sheep and goats because they don't emit as much methane as cows and then everyone in the garden in everyone in the community helps to sustain the garden so let's say there are 10 houses in the street in my street we are like there's like i think 40 houses but let's say we have 10 people in the street then there's a rotational basis of things why do i use these strangers there's like a timetable so there's two families working on monday two families working on tuesday and so on and so forth then on weekends everyone is working and also people if there's people who are unemployed that they can work throughout the week right then in that case the the first the first aim will be to feed the people who need food so if there's a a, a street where there are only a couple of people who need the food then the food will be given to those people but also the people who also want it, I guess. And then if it's a community that is like everyone needs the food, then everyone gets the food. But then we also kind of have to work for profit because we still exist in a capitalist and a liberal society. So we also work for profit to make it so that there's still money being reinvested into the community so they can buy more crops. So that people can become more educated on good farming techniques to buy um, equipment, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And also just to reinvest in like therapy, which is going to be a huge thing that I'm focusing on in the process of prevention. So once people are not hungry, then the people who are stealing out of out of for that for that reason are kind of eliminated. So people who are stealing because of addiction. Now that's when we come in with our therapy. 
There are a couple of reasons why people end up becoming addicted to drugs. The first one is simply because of um, the things that they've gone through as children and as adults. So it's like a coping mechanism. But there's also the thing where like it's just um, the chemical imbalances in the brain. So I once read in, in this other fiction book. I don't, I don't, why would you think of a fiction book for reference for like this stuff? But the person who was writing that book actually spoke to a, a neurologist to inspire the book. So I guess that's credible question mark please she's talking again she's talking yo my goodness <laughs> but yeah to put it very crudely addiction is the opposite of depression so where depression is a chemical imbalance in your brain that makes you not absorb endorph- endorphins then addiction is a chemical imbalance in the brain that makes you want to absorb too many endorphins and the easiest way for a person to absorb a lot of endorphins is through di- drug use so there are many ways of working through this right uh, first of all i feel like if the person becomes addicted because they just want escape from abuse that they went through as a child or even in adulthood then it's a thing where like i feel therapy helps and i don't know about how therapy functions i don't think it works th- for all people the way it does you know i believe that therapy is a good thing but i also believe that it doesn't work for all people it's not an end-all be-all and i know that's like probably an unpopular opinion but it's really quite true and i feel like we have to find alternative ways of making so that people are rehabilitated after having gone through something that traumatized them at some point in life and made them want to turn to addiction but when it's an imbalance in the brain now then i don't know what can be done there i don't know if there's been research to like you know how there's antidepressants or like anti-addiction pills i don't know if those exist but if it can if it's there then we provide this for those people there's also this other doctor and neurologist from america who talks about how like people can use highly addictive drugs but it's just regulated so it's not i don't i've i once watched him speaking on this other channel called for harriet and he was basically explaining that like drugs are only bad when used out of control so if like a person gets a drug like heroin a highly addictive drug and then they're used properly by like fully functioning adults not children now not people under the people whose prefrontal cortex hasn't finished developing obviously not those people but like adults who are using these drugs and they're fully functioning people instead of completely removing people from this like it can be regulated uh, by a regulatory body like a collaboration between drug dealers and like government officials obviously like that's probably quite controversial but it could work right for people who are like that those are like petty thefts now so like like stealing tvs stealing phones and such but when it comes to like greed now so like uh, people who have money but are still stealing like i more i just i generally don't know where to start with that one because when i think about these solutions i don't really think about if people who take more than they have to than they need uh there we just think about like it's the it's i feel like it's the same approach i would take with like the mega rich the super rich the one percent of the one percent you just take it away from them and give it to the poor simply put that's my solution for that one and when it comes to like violent crimes serious crimes like murder and rape there um i believe that it's 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 like a thing of before it happens before people become murderers and rapists 
then we we have a thing i feel like it should be like a, a the process of therapizing people right in the manner that is curated for them i feel like it should be mass therapy where like we kind of find different ways of intervening in different children's lives to make sure that they become well-rounded healthy individuals even before they become adults and this could this this helps like before people go out and become violent adults because they grew up in violent households but if people still end up committing murder and committing rape even though these um, measures are in place then i don't feel like prison really helps them because going to prison does not necessarily mean that you understand that what you did was wrong yes it can prevent you from re-committing that crime but it's really not i guess rehabilitative and not in the way that people want it to be and in many ways it's kind of like we know how prisons functioned in south africa right they were there to 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 punish not like obviously yeah we should i guess we should punish people who do this but i don't know if prison helps the way people think it does so for that for that one i feel like it's a thing where people should be doing community service like large scale she's talking she's talking you know what guys i think i'm gonna just end my episode here because i I don't want to keep pausing and starting and i'm not gonna edit the episode because i'm really really late uh for the people who are gonna watch this in the distant future yeah you'll be okay but for the people who are watching this today i posted so much later than i usually do i'm really sorry i'm just happy that it's still on saturday not like on sunday so thank you for watching i'm watching why do i keep saying watching thank you for listening to this episode um if you want to hear me elaborate on these points then yes send me a voice note guys i keep asking for voice notes i want them right just just i want to hear you talk (laughs) but yeah so send me a voice note here send me a dm on instagram uh the podcast instagram is screw is at screw you and it is s-c-r-u-e and y-o-u that is the link on instagram be sure to interact with the podcast stuffies over there and thank you again for watching for why do i say watching thank you again for listening if you liked it share share the episode with your friends with your families with that stranger you have only met once in your life share it please but not the app if you know yeah whatever but anyways thank you again for listening see you in the next episode bye bye